I would like to officially welcome you all here. Hello, everybody. I'm Bobby Harrington, and I'm so glad uh, that a few private invitations uh, spread so fast that you all are here. We're very grateful to have you here. I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a moment, and I want to encourage people to keep going through the line. We want to go ahead and begin because we'd like to honor your time and make sure that at 9 o'clock we can all have a closing prayer and you can leave here hopefully very encouraged. I wanted to draw your attention to a program that is, uh, there should be enough on every table. It says a Discipleship Restoration Network. And uh, inside of that on the, uh, I believe it is the third page, you'll find a schedule for the evening. Let's pray. God, um, we're just so grateful to be here tonight. King Jesus, we seek to honor you and build lives of allegiance to you and to the greatest cause on planet Earth, which is making disciples of you, King Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, David Young is uh, coming up. We have on the program listed both David, uh, who's at the North Boulevard Church of Christ, and uh, Rick Oster from Harding School of Theology in Memphis. Rick just waved at me at the back, so I guess he's going to be able to join us. So go ahead, David. Okay. It's probably the case that the Christian church in every generation has its share of problems that it faces. A couple of years ago, Bobby and I and a few other guys from Restoration Churches, Independent Christian Churches, Acapella Churches of Christ, and International Churches of Christ, uh, began to discuss what we consider to be the greatest threat to a real robust, biblical, disciple-making, orthodox faith in the 21st century, at least in the West, particularly here in the U.S. And um, it goes by uh, several names, progressivism or theological liberalism. I tend to use the terms interchangeably. And the more we thought about it, the more we thought that with the pressures that we face as America becomes increasingly pagan and as uh, really a theological left pushes against us, that what we need is a counterbalance to that. An organization that is uh, honored and proud to take a stand on an orthodox biblical Christianity uh, where disciple-making is the mission uh, where there's a high view of Scripture and of the big teachings of Scripture and where we don't feel a particular need to compromise the Christian faith to accommodate uh, the, the uh, progressive changes going on in America. So that started a conversation that's gone for um, a couple of years and culminates in this evening. Uh, Bobby's going to tell you a little bit more about what our solution is, but I'm supposed to give you now about three and a half minutes of what the problem is. And so I'm just going to say this as plainly as I know how, and I don't mean this in any way to be insultuous to anyone, but we would believe that theological liberalism is an existential threat to the Christian faith in America. We believe that the compromises that progressivism is willing to make will eventually destroy the faith of millions of people. And in some of our fellowships, I'm thinking particularly of mine and the Acapella Church of Christ, the only choices you have now, if you want a tribe, 
are becoming either the very sectarian right, uh, guys who um, already think I'm gone, or the far, far left. And what we believe is that there's a real orthodox and generous and beautiful place called just simply biblical Christianity. And that if we all found that place and found a tribe, if you will, uh, a team, a group of like-minded men and women, that it would not only give us a safe place to work out the implications of who we are, but it would also rally especially the next generation to it. And so you need to know that uh, the threats that we face are real. You're aware of the fact that um, even in the evangelical world now, the Christian faith is being reinterpreted so that such fundamental biblical doctrines as the exclusivity of Jesus Christ are now pretty openly challenged. The idea of the justice of God, God as a just God who really does punish and really does reward, is becoming an increasingly unpopular view. That we're finding um, churches and well-known teachers and uh, friends of ours, in fact, who are uh, teaching views of sexuality that are not only unbiblical, but really just fly in the face of 2,000 years of orthodoxy. And um, all of these pressures are, are really influential, and they're influential particularly, I think, on the next generation. And because socio uh, knowledge is often a social thing, and we, we need a team, we need to know that other people are standing with us, if we were to start an organization that had a very high view of Scripture and uh, a, um, a deep commitment to the uh, church, the best of the churches as we read of in Scripture, to restoring the disciple-making function of the church and to really living this thing out joyfully and in a winsome way, we think we could start an initiative that would have not only a big impact on these three fellowships, the ICOC and the Acapella Churches of Christ and the Christian churches, but we think it could break out and affect um, millions of people in a way similar to how the Gospel Coalition has affected and impacted so many Reformed traditions and has even been a great blessing to me. Imagine if we came together and said, you know, we're going to stand joyfully and with deep conviction for a biblical, orthodox church in the 21st century right here in America with a, a very high view of Scripture, a high view of who Jesus is, and a high view of the mission of Jesus to make disciples. We believe the problem is real. We believe that it's a serious threat. And um, so we're here tonight to invite you to consider with us forming an organization whose purpose is to present an alternative either to the maybe the sectarianism on the right but also what we consider to be the deep dangers of progressivism on our left. And uh, with that, I think Dr. Rick Oster will uh, speak. Well, good evening. Um, everything that David said is just absolutely true. And um, I graduated some years ago from Princeton Seminary <clears throat> and that is one of the main seminaries for the sort of the mainstream Presbyterian church in the United States. When I was there, uh, sort of the hot topic was ordination of women. And that denomination said, once that sort of became the status quo, is that um, if you can't, as to their students, if you can't participate in the ordination of women, then you can't be ordained either. And so they slowly just squeezed people out. And of course now, uh, the LGBTQ and other 
letters that go after that. Um, that's just old hat there now. And um, people like Tim Keller, who are very respected, important um, pastors in New York City and quite influential, he was really shunned um, just a few months ago there. Uh, he was supposed to speak and get a, a pretty important award there. And there was such a reaction from people because he didn't get on board with. He belongs to a Presbyterian denomination that tries to be biblical. And uh, so they just refused to give it to him. He wouldn't, they let him speak, but he wouldn't give him the award because he refused to support the gay-lesbian uh, lifestyle, uh, not only among members, but among people who are in the pastorate. And so, you know, once, once a certain perspective gets involved in um, the lives of congregations and seminaries, it becomes, it gets on a trajectory, and it's very, very difficult to stop that trajectory. And so what David said is true, and I know that this conference wants to create a kind of network among people who, who don't want to be reactionary either direction, but they want to be biblical and you know, gracious in their biblical faith, but firm in their biblical faith um, uh, with the restoration outlook. Let me mention one thing I think we have not done as well to perhaps keep some of the young men and women who are received theological training, because I'll be really candid with you. <clears throat> um, if you look at all the seminaries associated with the restoration movement, uh, we just don't have a stellar track record on sort of the fate of people who leave our seminaries, especially if they go do further graduate work. And I certainly don't have a single solution for that, but I've seen it from former students that I've had and are still friends of mine. But one thing I think we've been missing, at least in some places, and me too, I mean, uh, is that it's one thing to insist that we hold firm on things like the doctrine of the, of the cross and the atonement there and the doctrine of the resurrection and the doctrine of the ascension. But the Bible also talks about experiencing those truths, that there's a power of the lifestyle that follows the cross. There's a power in the resurrection. Paul uses that phrase in Philippians. He uses similar language in Ephesians when he talks about the enthronement of Christians as well as Christ, of course. And I think it's been easy for us to just talk about those as doctrines that we have to keep affirming and protecting, which is all true, but we haven't been as helpful, I think, at times to, in our own lives especially, to make it clear that there's a kind of deep-rooted piety, that if we're going to be restorationist, if we're going to have a network of people who want to take the Bible seriously, then we have to be very serious about the piety in the New Testament. And so I think that's one thing we also need to begin to work on is uh, reclaiming the piety that's in Scripture so that uh, this is not just words on a page of Scripture, but that the lifestyle that's there is also one that we have a deep, deep commitment to. And so um, I think that music is starting to tell me something. Hey guys, I'm Dave Stovall, and I wanted to talk to you about why it's so important to be discipling millennials. I'm 34 years old myself, so my story definitely lines up with why this is important. 
I spent about 15 years touring the world in different Christian rock bands, and I can say for myself, I didn't really have anybody personally discipling me. And so over time, with these natural questions coming up in my head about things like who wrote the Bible, where did it come from, I was getting my answers from just random articles online, most of the time things that just sounded right to me. I just began relying more and more on my own understanding and being more solidified in my own beliefs. And after a while, your trajectory is just really off. So it wasn't until somebody began personally discipling me that I started realizing, where did I get this philosophy from? And I realized I made it up and it differed from what Jesus was actually saying. So those hard questions really brought me to a place of understanding the importance of discipling and of bringing me back to a high view of Scripture. Tony and I are going to uh, talk you through in the next 10 minutes the belief and purpose statement for church leaders on page 6. So we're going to go back and forth And I worked really hard to have succinct five-minute notes of what I was going to say um, as I interacted with Tony, and I lost them. So now I'm just going to do my best. Um, I want you to know that what we're talking about is a network. Uh, It's a theological network based upon the focus of disciple-making and of restoring the Christianity of the Bible, Uh, especially Jesus' message, the gospel message, Jesus' method of disciple-making, and the local church at its best, as God envisions it, as Jesus does, by inspiring the Bible in all parts. And so for us, the gospel is the core message. And uh, the gospel message for us is not a transactional, salvation-only gospel. It's a gospel rooted in God's plans from before the creation of the earth. It's manifest in Jesus, who was preexistent with the Father, who became uh, incarnate as the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, humanity's King. He died on the cross uh, for our sins. He rose from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, where he is reigning as King. He will return one day, one day soon, and all of humanity will stand before him for a final judgment. And on that day, the only question that matters is, were we his faithful followers? Those who were not will go to hell. Those who were will experience the transformation of the renewal of all things in the new heaven and new earth, where we will enjoy God forever together. The gospel of Jesus' kingdom calls people to both salvation and discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. These are like two wings upon which the bride of Christ rises, and both must be healthy. Faith isn't just an intellectual agreement or kind of emotional warmth toward God. It's living. It's active. It's surrendering ourselves to Him and to His rule in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We surrender by trusting and following Jesus both as Savior and Lord in all things. 
our understanding of what it means to be uh, loyal to King Jesus will be reflected in our view of Scripture. We believe that God gave us the 66 books of the Bible to be received as the inspired, authoritative, and infallible Word of God for the purpose of our salvation and life. Now today, this is a hotly debated question because there are complexities and diversities in Scripture. They uh, were given in a specific cultural context or various contexts. And so today, in a postmodern world that questions everything, it's easy to doubt or to debate or to obfuscate or walk away from the teachings of Scripture. We want to avoid the errors of interpreting Scripture through the sentimental lens of feelings and opinions or uh, through the complex reinterpretation of passages that were once thought very clear and straightforward. Instead, we want clear thinking and faithfulness to the teaching of Scripture as God gives them to us. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God inspired all 66 books, and we honor the Lordship of King Jesus by submitting our lives to all that God has for us. The heart of the restoration movement at its best has been honoring the Lordship of Jesus by faithfully following Scripture. When I was working on my doctorate at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I had a professor, Dr. Dale Moody. And Dr. Moody, he made a statement that I'll never forget about Campbellites. He said, you know, Campbell was four-fifths right. He just missed it on the Holy Spirit. Mm. And I think Dr. Moody was right. We believe that when we are born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we live as a people who are filled and empowered. This is how we walk with God and discern His voice. A prayerful life rich in the Holy Spirit, is fundamental to true disciple-making and living in step with the reign of our Lord Jesus. We seek to be a prayerful, Spirit-led fellowship. We believe that the call to conversion is a call to surrender to King Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we believe that that uh, decision is a decision that we make. It's inspired by and prompted by the Holy Spirit, but we respond. And as we respond in the Bible, there is a clear model that God gives to us. We repent and turn from our sins. We confess Jesus as Lord, and we surrender our faith to him, expressing our faith in baptism. God responds, giving us his Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. We uphold baptism as an expression of faith for the remission of sins and also fundamentally as the normative means of entry, according to the Bible, to a life of discipleship. It marks our commitment to regularly die to ourselves and rise to live for Christ. We believe that God does sovereignly save as he sees fit. But at the same time, we are bound by scripture to uphold God's teachings about surrendering to Jesus through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. 
Disciple making is plan A for us. This is what we are called to do. It's not a program. It's a lifestyle. We want to be disciples who make disciples because of our love for God and for others. The Great Commission must be founded on the Great Commandment. To help us focus on Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross, our unity in Him, and His coming return, we typically celebrate communion in our weekly gatherings. May we never, ever lose the emphasis on this sacrament because it helps us to desire the biblical fruit of making disciples who are making disciples and who live and love like Jesus and go into every corner of society and to the ends of the earth. On page eight, I want to draw your attention to uh, point number six. Uh, Let me describe the challenge that we face more and more in a postmodern world. In a postmodern world, uh, there is a, a great desire by many people to just focus on Jesus. If a church claims they believe in Jesus, then that's good. Uh, Regardless of whatever type of church it is, the statement is often made, well, as long as they have Jesus, whatever else they believe, I'm okay with that. I refer to that as Jesus inclusivists. Unfortunately, the Jesus they believe in is often not the Jesus of the Bible. And secondly, it's not just Jesus. Jesus gave us the Bible the 27 books of the Bible that we would be faithful to him and what he has given to us. If you remember, the Great Commission says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we commend to everyone a model or a paradigm that holds to essential truth, the essential elements of the faith, important elements of the faith, and personal elements of the faith. The essentials are that which makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe that anybody who has placed faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and God has given them the Holy Spirit, they're our brother and sister in Christ. Beyond that, we believe that we must adhere to and advocate for and encourage everyone to uphold all the important teachings of the Bible. Uh, Let's go ahead to... Uh, eight, because it's uh, going to be, or, or actually nine. I think I'm on nine. Yeah. All right, thank you. Chris, will you hold the video that's about to start with the music? I need just one more minute. <laughs> we won't give that to any other speakers, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is what happens when you lose your notes. Um, I wanted to say a word about Jesus' lordship. It's actually number nine, and then Tony, if you'll finish this. Um, Let me just, um, number eight is important as well in terms of love and holiness. You can read those. But number nine is an important statement. There is so much pressure in our culture today on so many issues uh, to be tolerant, inclusive, non-judgmental, and accepting. So much of that is good, but so much of it is not from God. So we want to follow the Lordship of Jesus by the Word of God, and so we want to hold to the gospel and social justice, serving the poor, but with a priority on the gospel wherever we can hold to it. We believe in God's love and grace, but we also 
believe in God's holiness and the reality of hell. We believe that the Bible teaches that we are all called to ministry, both men and women. But in the home, the husband is to be the servant leader of his wife. He is the head of his wife, not in the sense of source, but in the sense of authority. And in the local church, God did design and teach that only men would be elders and the main preachers on Sunday morning. We believe there's so much pressure to give in on these issues today that good men and women are finding ways to explain away the scriptures. And friends, once we start down that road, if we can explain away those passages, history teaches us something. And Wayne Grudem documents it, and I've listed it here, both uh, Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller's book, and then Wayne Grudem's book. If you follow the historical trajectory of those who compromise on male leadership, the generation raised by those will compromise on sexuality, and ultimately there will begin a slide into compromising on other hard doctrines like hell. We're part of a wonderful meta-narrative. We know our heritage. We know our destiny. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will reward the saved and punish the wicked and finally destroy God's last enemy, death. He will put all things under the Father, returning them back returning everything back to the, the way God willed it, wanted it to be from before the foundation of time. We look at the Great Commission as an inherent part of God's original command to be fruitful and multiply. To this father, it's all about family. And I can't think of anything that would make us want to go to a cross other than family. We are a family movement of disciples who make disciples, who renew uh, churches and who start new churches to make more disciples. We want to reach as many as possible until Jesus returns and God restores all creation to himself in a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. I'm Douglas. There you go. And uh, this is my friend Christian. We're from the part of the Restoration Movement called the International Church of Christ. First, though, I want to say thank you to Tony and to Bobby because we can talk about making disciples. If it's not built on a solid, sound platform of truth, this is just language. It's just a gimmick. Uh, and it deserved the extra time it got, in my opinion. Uh, Christian, who became a Christian in Russia, I, North Carolina, Christian's going to go first, and I'll share after that. Okay, so um, I was going to talk for just a few minutes about um, this whole idea of discipleship. Uh, you know, the plan was to go to the, to the ends of the earth, right? To go to all nations. And the interesting thing about all nations is that most of them don't have the, found, the biblical foundation or biblical culture. So I grew up on three different continents. This is my fourth continent, and uh, I was, uh, I was um, uh, converted in Russia, 
And um, discipleship was transformational for me because I came from a background of atheist. My, my mom and dad were communists. I knew nothing about anything. I've never read the Bible before that. And through discipleship, through this culture of authenticity, of speaking truth and love to each other, of walking with people uh, that, that the church had at the time, uh, probably 80, 90% of the church were involved in discipleship in that way, in small groups, one-on-one. Because of that culture, I was able to go from knowing nothing about the Bible to being converted to leading um, in ministry in two years after, after my baptism. And um, from coming from a line of, of three generations of broken, broken homes to, to having a great family of my own, a Christian family, and believing children. And uh, the, our sort of a little portion of the movement went from 17 people who came to Russia as missionaries to, um, to, church, to 27 churches in 10 different countries in, in post-Russia. And I think a big part of it was this culture of discipleship. Thank you, Christian. I'd like to share some reasons we believe disciple-making must be the focus. I'm going to share four quick reasons. Um, Join me in the middle at any time if you feel the need. Number one, there's no biblical evidence at all that someone who's not a disciple is actually a Christian. We know these terms are used fairly synonymously, not in the letters in Revelation, but it's all over the Gospel and Acts. Jesus' method in the Gospels the movement that we see in Acts as fruit follows from root. To be a disciple is to be allegiant to Jesus Christ. Second reason we must have this. Fewer and fewer people, it's not just millennials, it's actually all ages, but especially the young, come from any kind of a stable nuclear family. And groups that are formed in discipling, whether it's a small group of three or seven or whatever, Those groups become like a surrogate family. It's our last chance to show people how to live in that way. And especially now, as by my read, most men, most mature men don't really have a best friend, someone they can talk to openly and honestly. And so this is vital to create that family. Thirdly, most of the world has had zero experience of Christianity in an authentic sense of that word. I mean, a quarter of the world are Muslims. A seventh of the world are Buddhists. A sixth of the world are Hindus. You've got hundreds and hundreds of millions state atheists and agnostics. And even in the supposed Christian, a third of the world, most people have never read the Bible. And because of that, we cannot assume the discipling group is a fantastic way to learn and to be pushed beyond our limits. I have no doubt, as Christian shared about the planting of a church in Moscow, Uh, A small group, 17, soon 10,000 people. We planted a church in London. We were eight people. We went up to 2,000 and started churches all over Africa and Asia and some other places too. Those small groups gave us the structure that enabled us to expand without spinning out of control. Those groups of brothers being honest with each other helps us to rise a little bit above our genes. And what I mean is, Many of us, by nature, are introverts. Mentoring, discipling can help us to be more outward focused. You may be impulsive. This helps us be more thoughtful. We we may not change our entire genome, but we can rise above the genes. We don't have to be uh, caught in cycles 
uh, generational kinds of cycles. So this was incredibly important for me. I'm so grateful for the input I've received and continue to receive. Oh, and the fourth one. We have an amazing capacity for self-deception. Yes. Proverbs 14, 12, you know, we think it's the right way, but it's the wrong way. It's the way to death. That's why I have all these passages about getting input and counsel. Jeremiah 23, that whole chapter is about people who have an imagined spirituality, an imaginary uh, experience of God. You can fake yourself into feeling it. Uh, the evangelical climate of easy believism is so rich. I, there's a, a book that's been recently released this year called uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. It's awesome. That's controversial because sadly, most people, most Protestants don't accept that. They believe that uh, that kind of fidelity and allegiance would be salvation by works, and they don't understand the conditional nature of Jesus' message. Well, those are four reasons. Our capacity for self-deception, most people in the world have no experience of authentic Christianity, few come from stable nuclear families, and also, if you're going to be a disciple, uh, that is what it means to be a Christian. Christian? Great. That was good. <laughs> uh, something else I wanted to mention, you know, uh, the, the sort of the backstory, the international backstory is very important, and I do think we need to take uh, discipleship so seriously because it's really going to be the key for us to spread the gospel everywhere. Uh, but even in our own backyard, I live in the States right now, we live in Austin, Christi and we're part of the Austin Christian Church. As part of that church, we started a group about four years ago called Tribe, and it was a downtown ministry that has grown, and it's basically 60-70% millennials. And uh, it was, it was, it's been a fantastic four years in my life because I've been able to sort of be immersed in, in their thinking, in their passion, in their culture. And what I've realized, uh, I think, is that discipleship is the vehicle through which uh, uh, the brothers and sisters that we're around uh, get to fall in love with biblical Christianity. And, uh, and, and this, is the, this is the vehicle through which millennials can, uh, can find uh, much more appeal in biblical Christianity than in postmodern post culture um, because they crave, they desire uh, a deeper relationship, authenticity. They desire honesty. They desire to be able, uh, a climate where it's safe to be able to question things. And, and get deep, profound answers and not be shut down. Mm. Uh, they desire a climate where they can, they, they desire social justice. Uh, they desire all these profound things that can actually be found in biblical Christianity. And I think the problem really is not that uh, millennials uh, wouldn't, wouldn't feel connected or, or wouldn't be devoted enough to be disciples. The problem is that they're reacting to an overly institutionalized church environment. What they're reacting to is uh, the, the church that how it was meant to be, it was meant to be a movement, not an institution. Uh, it was meant to be authentic. It was, it was, it would, it was meant to be a network of organic uh, groups that, that passionately pursue holiness together. And, and when you present that to them uh, uh, through discipleship, they fall in love with it. And postmodernism actually is not appealing to them anymore. So I just think that Discipleship is the key for that to reach the, the next generation. How exactly it's done, how discipling is done, brother, brother, sister, sister, or in groups, that's the how we can figure that out. We were simply talking to you about the why. We can work on the how, but the why seems to be absolutely certain. We must do it. My last thought, 
Discipleship is a process. There's a verse that's uh, mistranslated in almost every New Testament. It's John 15, 8. It's about bearing fruit and becoming Jesus' disciples. It doesn't actually say prove yourself or show yourself to be his disciples. It's that you may become. Because even post-baptism, it's still a process. We never stop becoming disciples. It's not, oh, I was saved, now I'm secure. Yes, you're secure. Now, let's continue to walk with Christ and be a disciple. It's a process. Exponential is passionate about advancing the kingdom of God through the multiplication of healthy, reproducing churches. We are activists for churches that will reach a lost and dying culture. What the church must deliver now are courageous leaders willing to risk everything for the gospel. Leaders who are committed to making disciples, who make disciples, who start churches that start churches. Currently, less than 4% of U.S. churches ever reproduce or multiply. That must change. If we want to make a change, we have the mass to do it. I think God's Holy Spirit, His momentum is with us, and I think... If we pull this thing together, we can be looking at an inflection point of the church and the mission of Jesus Christ to move from 4% to 6% to 8% to 10%. And I think there's a hurting world that is waiting for us to do exactly that. I don't think there's anything more exciting going on in Christendom right now than church planting. And I got thinking recently, I don't know that there has been a more powerful single sentence in church planting than the one Peter Wagner wrote about 30 years ago when he said, there is no more effective means known to man of reaching lost people than starting new churches. That single sentence has inspired more church planting, created a spark that has spread like wildfire across the United States and around the world as we see at Exponential and otherwise to start more churches that are reaching more people. It's exciting stuff. It's amazing stuff. We're going into one of those times where I think we may look back, like in the early 19th century, and say, man, I wish I could have been alive in those days. But every road that leads into Jerusalem leads out of Jerusalem. And one of the concerns that we have spoken of is there's something worse than not planting churches that are starting new churches. And that is starting a church planting multiplication movement that starts churches that in, 15, that in 50 years are teaching heresy. Starting a church planting movement that in 50 years are not following, not faithful to the Bible and are leading people to believe that they are following Christ when they're not really following Christ. And so this is a concern that I have. And, and, and part of it grows out of the fact that a lot of church planters are young and they are talented, but they are often more passionate about pragmatism than they are about biblical authority. In fact, they often understand more about how, how it works to plant a new church than biblical principles and, and doctrine for starting healthy, faithful churches. A couple weeks ago, I was leading in our uh, church residency program, church planting residency program, and, um, and one of the young men, we were talking about restoration movement stuff, and, and, and asked, now, why do, we, why do y'all make such a big deal about Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings, every Sunday? And I said, well, first of all, it's not a test of fellowship. I said, I have friends who lead 
Baptist churches that don't practice weekly communion, and that my friends are probably closer to God than I am, and my guess is that a lot of people in their churches are probably more spiritual than people who come to our church, but for us, it's an issue of we really believe that the best way to start a church that's going to be under God's blessing and power is to plant God's churches God's way, to follow God's principles and practices that put you in the best position to be under his blessing and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit moving through you. And so when you look at, and then I talked about what scripture says, and I talked about the history and Clement of Alexandria and, and, and Justin Martyr and all that. About, and I said, and so therefore, we just believe the best way to be under God's blessing is to practice what they practiced. Literally, his next line was, well, I guess I don't know what the Bible teaches about Lord's Supper, and I guess I don't know the history, but I still don't understand why you make it such a big deal. Now, the conclusion certainly does not make somebody heretical, but the process to get to that conclusion, where basically it's very pragmatic and very much what makes you cool on the playground? What are the other kids in the playground doing? And so this is our concern. I, I talk with church planters who feel the pressure, and it's, it's for several reasons. And, and the one, one reason really is, uh, you know, dead, Malcolm Muggeridge talked about how dead fish swim with the current. The easiest thing is to always go along with what's cool on the playground. That's one thing. The other thing, though, candidly, is evangelism. They don't want to let, they are passionate about evangelism and they don't want to let anything get in the way that that might keep someone from coming to Christ. And so the temptation is to make things that are significant and call them insignificant and not stand for truth and trust the Bible to change lives. And the other issue, quite frankly, is money. There is this fear. What if I teach God's order in creation and people leave my church? and we can't pay the bills. And so there's this great fear. And so, and so I'm convinced of the need for us to sound a clarion call. It reminds me of, I think it was somewhere around 1836, seven, eight, that, um, that Alexander Campbell was feeling the pressure. And so he felt the need to write, um, what was it called? The Christian system. That's right, the Christian system, which was his... Now, now we're not Alexander Campbell, and we're not writing, you know, it's, it was like two, three hundred pages of, of his understanding of doctrines that would unify the church to give clarity of what does it mean, what do we believe about restoration movement principles. It wasn't a creed, although it was a clarifying of many deductions and principles. It was a clarif- it was a, it was a sound clear trumpet for people to rally behind for unity. Um, I'm not interested in being defensive. I'm not interested at all in playing defense. I am interested in, being, uh, in letting God build the church in his way, in his power, and putting ourselves underneath his blessing by aligning to his word and being united in that. And I think that's what God has called us to do. On the next podcast, two-thirds of the major accounts in the Gospels, Jesus was investing in 12 men. Not a single line of Shakespeare has ever rescued anyone from an addiction or saved a broken marriage or pulled someone out of the pit of despair 
But I've seen the Word of God do that. Are you done doing it your way? If so, Jesus will take you right where you're at. We're just going to submit to Him. We're not going to listen to the culture anymore. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Dave Stovall, and all music and sound effects were created here in Franklin, Tennessee in my home studio.